This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with writer Bree Lee. Bree joined me to discuss her latest book, Who Gets to Be Smart? Privilege, Power and Knowledge. Bree examines her own privilege and presumptions and realises that far from offering equality of opportunity, Australia's education system, among others in the world, exacerbates socioeconomic disadvantage. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins. And I'm really delighted to be joined by Bree Lee today. Bree is an author and a freelance writer. Her journalism has appeared in publications including The Monthly, The Saturday Paper, The Guardian Australia and Crikey. I actually spoke with Bree about her first book, Eggshell Skull, a number of years ago, I think now. It won Biography of the Year at the ABIA Awards, the People's Choice Award at the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards, and also was longlisted for the 2019 Stella Prize. And uh, Brie has written a whole range of short and longer works, so it's great to have her on the show. And uh, also interesting to note that Brie is a non-practising lawyer and continues to engage in legal research and issues-based advocacy, as will be become clear in this program because we are talking all about this new book that Brie has written. It's called Who Gets to be Smart? Privilege, Power and Knowledge and it's been published by Alan and Unwin. Hi there Brie and thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me again. It's lovely to be here again. It was such a a great thing to sit down with you in person last time Mm. in a studio. It feels really odd that that was a thing. One day, one day we will be together again. Exactly. I can't wait to get back to normal. We are obviously doing this by distance, but what is a great thing, I guess, in this book is that you did get a chance to uh, to travel before the pandemic hit. And that's really where this book starts off is your trip over to England. In particular, you talk about your time in Oxford where you visited a friend, Damien. So I thought that would be a really great place to start because it is a really fascinating chapter, that first chapter, and it does introduce us to all of the themes and issues that this book continues to explore throughout the subsequent chapters. So could you just tell us a little bit about what brought you to Oxford and what your first impressions, impressions and also expectations were of your experience there? Yeah. So, I mean, my brilliant and dear friend, Damien, um, who is still my friend, uh, thankfully, was named a Rhodes Scholar. And 2018, in many ways, is sort of feels like a lifetime ago. Obviously, it's like a solid three years, but it's also, you know, when we could travel overseas. And for me personally, it was when I, my opinion on all of these sort of questions has changed radically since 2018, when I started researching and writing this book. And this is a roundabout way of saying that when I went over to visit Damien at Oxford, It was at a time in my life when I felt like him being named a Rhodes Scholar made him a winner and me basically a loser. And I had so guzzled the Kool-Aid, so to speak, and was just so enamoured by Oxford, by this incredibly well-maintained bubble, by the sandstone, by the history and the, the sort of commitment to knowledge that was on show. And... I expected there to be, you know, sort of idiosyncrasies and 
probably strange things as well. But when I got there, I I was actually quite shocked. Damien, one of the many ways in which he is brilliant is that he's got an incredible memory um, and he's also very generous. And he took me on a tour, not just of Rhodes House, but also of Oxford and all of the different colleges. And I very quickly just became quite shocked and uncomfortable at the way I felt that institution still had its gaze so firmly set on the past, just how much it revered a sort of bygone age of these sort of gentleman scholars and these enlightenment ideals. And one really obvious sort of easy example is that out the back of one of the colleges, there is a sort of field and there are all of these cows in the field, these Christchurch cows. And it used to be um, at a time when not so long ago, Oxford was only for the sons of the landed gentry sort of thing, that these young men would bring a cow from their estate with them and they would drink the milk for their tea and tasty treats um, from their cow. (laughs) And obviously the cows are no longer used for that explicit purpose, but there is still this entire field that is just grass with cows on it set aside so that there is still a kind of marker of that heritage. Um, And it was just sort of, there were so many examples like that where in the architecture of the place, but also in the sort of staffing, the curriculum of the place, just the the ideas and the ideals and the, the priorities and everything, we're just looking backwards instead of looking forwards. And it just made me more uncomfortable than I had anticipated. And it started me on a journey of asking questions about well, who gets the opportunity to go to a place like that and how does the sort of narrowness of who they allow in affect and shape power and who gets to wield power in the rest of society. Well, it is very striking what a kind of institution and system like that, who that kind of excludes and whether it's conscious as in the original kind of settings, which was we're consciously excluding women, for example, and then we decide eventually to, to let white women in or rich white women. But then there are a whole range of other people of different intersectional identities that are also consciously and unconsciously excluded. And and as you say in the chapter, there's also really obvious class divisions on campus as well. I wonder, did it feel to you, having been to an Australian university yourself, did it feel markedly different in the way that it ran? Because obviously people are living on campus, which is a possibility here in Australia, but it seems like it has this level of intensity and, as you say, all of this heritage that um, is really constantly reinforced. So I wonder, you know, in that sense, in terms of the culture and the class divides and other divides, what was noticeable to you and and what did you observe? Yeah, that's a really interesting question and I haven't been asked it before. And I think there is sort of two parts to it. One is that I spoke to one of Damien's friends who said, and this friend was a student at Oxford, um, and he said that in his opinion, Oxford was one of the oldest maintained bubbles in the world. And in that sense, I I would agree that, you know, certainly in the sort of quote unquote Western or English speaking world, there's just a, a depth of history, like a, a, a sort of level of richness of sort of precedent in one particular postcode that just has really anchored it 
in the past. And one thing I mentioned in particular in the first chapter that Australia doesn't suffer from so much is, of course, in the UK, the the way the British can immediately stratify people depending on their accents. And, you know, we have different types of those difficulties here, but just not to the same degree that it seemed present when I visited there. But what I would say Australian campuses do differently is that there is this lingering insecurity um, and I think it's a sort of cousin or maybe just a part of what we sort of widely refer to as the cultural cringe where this inferiority complex as a kind of good little colonial outpost down south means that sometimes we can double down on trying to establish traditions and um, sort of these like like sandstone conservative elements to sort of prove ourselves and to try and fast track the sort of steepedness of the history at a place like Oxford. And so you get in particular the big sandstone universities in Australia sometimes referred to as the sort of group of eight universities or what have you where they even, you know, again, it's in the architecture, it's in the way they hierarchically structure their staffing, it's in the curriculum. They try to emulate places like Oxford as a shortcut to legitimacy. And that is just, I mean, (laughs) it's colonisation 101, is um, just trying to copy and paste things in a new place and set up a whole new social hierarchy based on the way the motherland does it. It did, reading the experience at Oxford, remind me of my own time living on campus really briefly because we did have formal dinners where you had to dress up in a robe and wear your best dress and preferably a dress. And um, it really did when you were writing about going into breakfast and that the situation you experienced there and also visiting the Bodleian Library, which is also such a well-known institution, a library across the world. You know, these are the things that certainly did have echoes here and it did seem like uh, although it's not to the same scale that we do have these really odd traditions that don't seem to have a, a reason for being necessarily in a logical rational sense and as you say that hierarchy that is imposed kind of without you realizing mm, and that's what's so difficult to fight about these institutions who really admire the enlightenment thinking you know, the Enlightenment was an incredible time where power was prized out out of the fingers of religion and into sort of science and knowledge. But also what it did was set the white man on the centre of the map and give him a unique position of being able to be, quote unquote, objective and point at other things and understand them. And when you create that centre versus the other, what you automatically do is set a blueprint for hierarchy of all different types of people on all different types of lines. And so what you get in Australia is this process sort of during and and continuing because of colonisation of taking the blueprint of a university from the UK, bringing it across to Australia. And because it's steeped in this Enlightenment language, people are just blind to how absurd and idiosyncratic it often is um, and how it's not necessarily the best thing for the Australian context and how it's not necessarily the only way to do things. 
Brie, I want to bring in some of these white men that you bring up in your book because you demonstrate in this book and in this first chapter, for example, you talk about Cecil Rhodes, the fact that these tertiary institutions are centred around and spurred on by the funding of the ideology of these old, now mostly dead white men of a couple of centuries ago who were heavily involved in colonisation, is it any wonder that we end up with these colonial hangovers and, and legacies within these institutions? So I'd really love to hear about Cecil Rhodes and and the controversy, I guess, at Oxford University and, and how his legacy is so intertwined and why that causes such ongoing consternation. So the most important thing to mention about Cecil Rhodes. Um, well, actually, there are a lot of important things. Um, but one is that it is not true to say that Cecil Rhodes was doing what was, quote unquote, normal and acceptable in his own time. To criticise Cecil Rhodes now, people who like his legacy and like what he stands for will say that that's sort of presentism is what people like me sometimes get accused of, you know, that you're judging people from the past by today's standards. Putting aside for one moment that hindsight is a gift, what we know from copious records are that in his own time, Cecil Rhodes was an extremely divisive figure. This is one example. Oxford University wanted to give Rhodes a honorary degree, um, an award, and almost 100 academics threatened to boycott the ceremony because he was, in his own time, so notoriously good at bloody, knees-deep colonisation and violence over in Africa. And he was just, he laid the blueprint for apartheid, he made extraordinary amounts of money from the bloodiest version you can possibly imagine of the diamond trade. And, And he... Did, not that this would be an excuse, but he didn't even just sort of do it from a distance. He really was over there rolling his own sleeves up. And his own writing suggests that he he was very proud of what he was doing, expanding the British Empire and making huge amounts of money from raping and pillaging. So when these almost 100 scholars and fellows at the time threatened to boycott the ceremony, what happened was that more rich and powerful people who liked and supported Cecil Rhodes said that they would boycott if the 90 or so academics boycotted. And essentially what happened was that in his own time, people tried to cancel Rhodes and they couldn't because he and his friends were too rich. What happens then is that this sort of uh, one historian who I cite in the book, who I, I agree with, this sort of seems to like set in Cecil Rhodes a desire to really feel like he had conquered Oxford, you know, this like opposition that came up against him. And so when he dies, he leaves just this extraordinary endowment, so much money that he is basically able to purchase his legacy. And he creates the Rhodes Scholarships and sets out the criteria for which he believes he is funding future generations of men for the world's fight. And it is very clear from his own words and work that he thinks that to mean the extension of the empire. And it's men only, the scholarships are only available to, you know, whites only schools. It's all precisely as awful (laughs) as as you can imagine. I mean, it, it is important to note that Some Rhodes scholars have 
So these are young people now for several decades who have gone through and financially, um, but also in a sort of kind of kudos and, and career trajectory way, benefited from being Rhodes Scholars. Some of them have been the most outspoken against Cecil Rhodes's legacy. Um, there are complexities involved, of course, but what is just undeniable is that in recent years, there is a movement called Rhodes Must Fall. Over in South Africa, the movement was successful in getting, for example, a statue of Cecil Rhodes taken down from the university campus. The Rhodes Must Fall movement is more broadly and importantly about things like staffing, about things like um, opportunities for education, about things like curriculum. But of course, the statues are this sort of, you know, center point of the argument. Where the statue of Cecil Rhodes is on Oxford campus is above Oriel College. When I was there in 2018, there were still heated discussions happening about the Rhodes Must Fall movement in Oxford. People wanted it taken down. And too many donors threatened that they would remove their funding for Oriel College if the statue was taken down. And then what I found out much more recently was that when Black Lives Matter hit the mainstream in 2020, the calls for the Rhodes Must Fall movement got louder again. And there was an entire like commission set up by Oxford to look into the matter. And they returned their decision only recently saying that, no, they would still keep it up. Um, and so it's just this battle, <laughs> the battle that started when Rhodes was alive of whether or not people are willing to look his legacy in the eye continues. And it seems that people who win each stage of the battle are just, again, whoever has more money at any given time. You point out in the first chapter on Rhodes the fact that there's also an ongoing issue, and this I know for certain that it's an issue here, the fact that only 3.9% of Oxford's professors have a black and minority ethnic background. Cambridge is a little bit better at 6.4%. And one of the things I thought was really interesting was that um, you say undergraduate students can still complete a history degree without studying the non-European world. I mean, that last point is not the case, I know for certain, at uh, Melbourne University, but it is concerning that the focus can be so narrowed, not just in curriculum, but also in the staffing arrangements at these kind of institutions. And we do see that here as well in terms of women and the number of women professors, for example, as well. So I wondered when you were thinking about that, because you did talk to Damien and, and he did mention, oh, I've got this one class, that's where my Milton class is. <laughs> uh, and he's studying one subject on Milton and only a specific part of Milton's work. So it got me really thinking about this nostalgia for knowledge and learning for learning's sake. And obviously it does build skills to have uh, critical thinking, for example, in philosophy and literature and, you know, history. But I wondered what your thoughts were on that development, especially here in Australia, you talk about the fact that now suddenly employment and education are lumped together so closely in ministerial portfolios. We've kind of got Oxford on the one side with this nostalgia and this focus on deep knowledge, it sounds like. And then on the right-hand side or the Australian side, we've got a government that's pushing ever more towards, well, it has to have an outcome and we need to prepare these people for the real world. 
I wonder whether you had any similar observations about, you know, is that why we keep getting drawn back to these old institutions is because we have some nostalgia for that way of doing things, even though we're being very desperately pushed into a digital era? Mm. This is a really big, chewy question that I think about a lot. The way I conceptualise those two sides is that, in my opinion, there exists a healthy tension between them, or there should exist a healthy tension between them, because I think one of the reasons the universities as an entire group, that's the Australian universities as a group in 2020, were unable to sort of more clearly advocate for themselves as a collective last year was because there is this deep rift this sort of chasm even between the universities about what a university is for and therefore who a university is for and the two camps are this sort of knowledge for knowledge sake idea um, you know that that a university shouldn't need to point to something like graduate outcomes in a sort of marketplace sense to justify why it is deserving of funding, that it is about education, it's about critical thinking, it's about just knowledge gathering and knowledge sharing and future generations and investment in the intellectual health of future generations. The problem with approaching that idea with a sense of purity or or with too much exclusivity is that it makes it really exclusive. It's not an option for most Australians to just take three or four years and explore knowledge for knowledge's sake. What I think is a really important thing is talking about how we get more first-in-family students and more equity students getting the opportunity to go to university. And so then we go to the other side of the question of what a university is for and therefore who a university is for. And it, it becomes much more about gainful employment. And if you're someone who has never had a parent or an aunt or an uncle, let alone a grandparent or maybe even a sibling, go to university and you're sitting there at the family dinner table trying to articulate why it is worth the opportunity costs, why three or four years is worth not being able to work as much during that time, why it is worth not being able to meet your caring obligations, during that time, why you would have to relocate for those three or four years away from your family. And I think that for those people who we really need to be encouraging to feel like university is a place for them, something like graduate outcomes is hugely important. Um, I think a university can and should and must be both of these things. But part of the problem in Australia as well is that there is such a huge difference in student cohorts and the funding structures and arrangements for the sandstones and for a lot of the others. So these sandstone universities, for example, um, take a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. I think it's maybe maybe a single digit percentage, perhaps 10% of equity students. And they're the ones that get the most funding from philanthropic sources. They're the ones that can charge the highest fees, etc. And so in 2020, when Frydenberg said that universities were sitting on millions of dollars of assets and therefore shouldn't be eligible for JobKeeper, and then universities have had to shed tens of thousands of staff, um, in reality, not all universities in Australia are sitting on millions of dollars of assets. Only some of them are. Only the very sort of well-off rich ones. 
And so then there's a further question where it's like, well, if this is a government-funded organisation, if it is essentially a school that should be charging young people or anyone really charging people money to get an education, how are they making so much money that they can amass millions of dollars of assets? Are they being run by run too much like businesses is a common argument we hear where university vice chancellors make significantly more money than, for example, the education minister whose door they're knocking upon asking for more funding. When I just when I compare where I'm doing a PhD now, the University of Sydney, to one place I visited in 2018, for example, um, JCU in northern Queensland, the difference in student cohort, student demographic, the difference in funding arrangements, like it is a mistake to try to understand all of the university sector in Australia as being one thing. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about another concept that you bring into the book. It's called Curiarchy. And I just loved the conversation and all the work that you were drawing from in that particular chapter, because it really was quite resonant and directly relevant to what we've just been saying in terms of universities and academia, for example, and having different hierarchies and tiers. And obviously within academia, there are clear tiers of employment and there's kind of stable, secure employment. Um, In America, they'd call it tenured employment. And then there are these insecure, casualized positions for academics, for example, or even just adjunct more honorary positions. And you talked to a really wonderful person, Omid Tofidjian. Um, you know, you have these great conversations with him. And one of the quotes that you draw out from his own views, I just really wanted to read out because you were having this conversation with him about, should I undertake a PhD? What do you think? And he said, Quote, I would say that academia is second only to Manus Prison in terms of being the most violent and cruel institution I have ever encountered. And that was just, I guess, really striking to me because it's something I see academics say from across the world, not just here in Australia. And it seems kind of directly relevant to this concept that you bring in in Kyriaki. So I wondered if you could um, share with us that concept and its relevance for society as well as for universities. Yeah. So Kyriaki is a term that was first coined by the feminist theologian Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza. But I first encountered it via Ahmed and and for anyone who doesn't know, Ahmed was the translator for Behrouz Bouchani's incredible multi-award winning book, No Friend But the Mountains. And Ahmed and I met half a dozen times over 2018 because Behrouz was still imprisoned on Manus Island when his book was winning the awards. And so Ahmed would go and accept the awards on his behalf. And so I was chatting to him this one time and I said to him that, that he seemed to me to have figured out a way to combine really powerfully and effectively activism and making change and, and, and doing things he cared about with academia and something I love, which is just reading and writing and, and researching, learning for learning's sake and curiosity and inquiry. And he was very reluctant to give me advice. And then he said that line, um, which you just read out, which of course left me sort of gobsmacked. And I went away and read up a lot about Kiriaki. And basically, the most important thing to remember about it is that it's a pyramid, and then we call it the Kyriakal pyramid, and that it is it is sort of simple in that if you imagine a pyramid, it's easy to imagine how when people are stratified, 
the more people on the bottom rungs of the pyramid, the higher the people at the top get to sit. But the most important thing to remember about the pyramid is that the fewer people at the top, the better for the people at the top. It is all about exclusivity. And once I started seeing this Kairiakal pyramid, I couldn't unsee it. And in particular, I think Kairiaki is a really valuable tool for understanding institutions and the relationship between individuals and institutions. And I, that's, I mean, that's something I'm very interested in questioning. You know, humans collectively create processes, procedures, institutions like academia or, for example, the law. And then we sort of export um, any sense of responsibility for the outcomes or the effects of those institutions on individuals. And when you start looking at academia through the Kairiakal pyramid, like through this lens, what becomes very obvious is that a lot of our academic institutions gain a lot more money, power, prestige by virtue of who they exclude rather than who they include. One very obvious sort of easy target example is that private schools, often we will hear the the word exclusive used as a marker for the excellence sort of or or fantastic standards of a school. And that, that is something that collectively we should feel deeply ashamed of because a school is supposed to be a place where young people are taught and where knowledge is gathered and knowledge is shared. And just once you start looking for patterns of inclusion and exclusion, things tend to become very clear. And Ahmed puts it much better, but essentially in in several of his writings or interviews he's done makes the case that the reason universities, for example, are able to maintain their position in society is because they are so good at denigrating the knowledge that is produced and shared in any other place. It's all about exclusion and exclusivity. I loved the long quote you you cite from his podcast episode, Race Matters, because that last line that he gives there is so relevant and very relevant to what you've just said. Quote, so for the university to have this privileged status in our society and in our community and in politics, it needs to other other sites of knowledge production. Um, I had a moment of reflection there as well because we do have this really quote-unquote accepted way of delivering knowledge and sharing knowledge and we do see you know things like community radio and community media challenging that for example and people making their own podcasts challenging that and zines and all kinds of different ways of producing knowledge that are not through a tertiary institution but it did make me think that you're kind of pushing up against something that is really just widely accepted and quite invisible is that othering process of other channels of knowledge. Yes, and it's just this same thing again where um, it is so extraordinarily um, invisibilized (laughs) that this is the way it's always been done and this is the way it needs to be and it just comes back to that really ingrained colonial enlightenment mindset of of this is the centre and the centre must hold. One of the things that uh, is really interesting to me as well, obviously, is 
you don't just talk about tertiary institutions, although that is clearly one place where young adults and teenagers and uh, mature people can go to upskill and, you know, learn and uh, in many cases, as you point out, increase their earning potential and capacity. But there's also the precursor to that, which is preschool, primary school, high school, and there's great levels of inequity in those systems as well in terms of access and also the way that, as you said about high schools, it's all part of that hierarchical system as well. And the funding is also really problematic, as you point out. So I didn't want to to miss out on that area that is so critical because they are really the channels and the funnels toward university and tertiary learning if, if people are so inclined to pursue a certain area once they leave high school. So I wondered if you could just share with us some of your observations when you were thinking about childhood and teenage years and this other area of learning, because it is often a time when my learning was most alive and, you know, I was really excited by reading and and I was lucky to have some really passionate teachers in the arts, for example, that really spurred me on. So, you know, it seems to make all the difference to a child to have access to quality learning in these other institutions before university. Yeah, I had no idea how bad our two-tiered schooling system was in Australia before I started researching this book, and it is a national disgrace. So about 40 years ago, it was only about sort of single-digit percentage of kids who went to private schools. And that is how it still is these days, or, you know, maybe in the sort of early teens of percentages of kids who go to private schools um, in the UK and Canada. Australia is an absolute outlier in how, it, how many Australian children go to private schools and that the vast majority of those private schools are religious. So nowadays, um, it's almost a 50-50 split in Sydney and Melbourne at secondary schools, down the middle, private versus public. That is a drift that has been happening in the last four decades, um, but it's been in particular noticeably getting significantly worse since Howard-era policies enshrined this idea and, more importantly, this rhetoric of school choice above everything else. And the premise is that parents are the sort of starting point of education policy and education economic policy, and that parents should get to choose where they want their children to go and the government or the state should support them in making that decision. The problem with that, though, now is that almost 90% of students with any kind of higher needs, so the government identifies that as, for example, kids for whom English is a second language, kids with disabilities, kids at really smaller regional schools or from low socioeconomic backgrounds and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids, kids who, when they turn up on Monday morning, need a bit of extra support to be able to reach their full potential and to be able to essentially compete with the kids who, by luck of the draw, have it better at home and in their postcodes. And almost 90% of those children are at state schools. The drift over the last four decades means that there are extreme, very extreme concentrations of disadvantage being left behind at state schools. There is an accepted wisdom in middle class, our large middle class of Australia, that 
if you are, I'm not saying I agree with this, but it is the, the stats show that it is the trend, that if you're a good parent who cares about your kid's future and education, the millisecond you can afford to, you will get them out of the public school and across to the private school, especially for high school, for secondary education. And the results are devastating en masse. And what you get is parents who feel an obligation to put the interests of their children first and them often feeling torn that they don't want to buy into this system but feeling like they don't have a choice. And it's just, it's so awful. And when you look at the data as well about school funding in real terms, school funding for private schools keeps going up at a much faster rate than school funding to public schools goes up. But year upon year, the public schools are taking more students than the private schools. Like just, it's, it's, it's the opposite <laughs> to the way it should be. And people sort of just don't care about it. People know what the problem is. We haven't even started talking about transparency. Um, and it keeps getting worse. Um, it's been almost 10 years since the Gonski report came out which highlighted all of these issues, but essentially the power of the Catholic Church as a lobbying organisation and the power of the aspirational middle class of Australia is too much for any political party to, or certainly either of the major political parties, they don't seem to be willing to treat all children equally because it's just too, too risky for them to take that stand. Yeah, it sounds like there are so many vested interests that it gets to the point where, oh, it's all too hard and it gets put in the too hard basket. Yes, and it just doesn't have to be this way and and it's not this way anywhere else. And the result is that Australia has the fourth most segregated by class schooling system of all OECD nations. It is a shocking thing to have deeply embedded in your education system. And I think so many Australians would think they're egalitarian or would aspire to be egalitarian. And yet something so foundational as education is anything but egalitarian. And I did want to just quickly cite a statistic that supports what you've just said. You say that in the five years to 2018, public schools took 76% of Australia's enrolment growth, but clearly the funding was not corresponding to that enrolment growth. Brie, I wanted to just finish this conversation to reflect on what your thoughts were, especially in the concluding chapter, what you ended up with when you had reflected and gone on this trip to Oxford. You'd also done obviously extensive research on these topics. You certainly do arrive at a different position than when you started. So I thought it might be a great chance to mention that reflection and that point of conclusion that you have reached in your thinking on these issues. Yeah. Before starting this work, I had not realised the degree to which I had just outsourced my priorities to these institutions with this sort of blind acceptance. I had just taken this criteria sheet for these huge ideas like success and like intelligence itself and worth. I had just accepted this criteria sheet from my successive from the successive institutions through which I passed. Um, and they made me miserable. And they taught me and ingrained in me ideas of some people being better than others that I am very glad I'm now free from. It just it used to be that I would encounter these institutions, like these sandstone buildings and these 
I love these structures, you know, not just the buildings, but like these, these titles and these credentials and these opportunities and everything. I just, I used to take them with a blind acceptance and accept that I was not excelling in that system to the degree I could or should have. And now when I see these things, my automatic response is one of suspicion and questioning. And certainly my ideas as well, we didn't even touch on any of the sort of science or this question of what intelligence is or could or might or should mean. Um, but certainly now I, am, I feel much more free and convinced that the thing I most value actually is, is more a disposition, it's curiosity. And anyone who tries to equate an individual's worth with their intelligence is no friend of mine. It is such a obviously extensive book and there's so much detail in there, as you mentioned, that we didn't even get a chance to touch on. It's called Who Gets to Be Smart? Privilege, Power and Knowledge. I've just been speaking with Bree Lee. Thank you so much, Bree, for taking the time to sit down with us and actually get into some of these topics in some real depth. Thank you, Amy. And hopefully next time we can be in the studio again. I hope so. I can't wait for the day. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.